Hi, everyone. Welcome to STEM From's podcast, Where Does Your Journey Stem From?, hosted by myself, Dr. Karina Minardi. Today, we are joined by Siraj, who is currently a doctoral student at Cornell. Let's welcome to the stage, Siraj. Hi, Siraj. Hey, Karina. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, of course. Great to have you. Siraj Rajendran is a PhD student in the Tri-Institutional PhD program in Computational Biology at Weill Cornell Medical College, specializing in computational biology and bioinformatics. Siraj's research interests include the impact of data heterogeneity and federated learning, predicting the ploidy status of embryos using deep video classification, clinical trial emulation, and deep learning in genomics. Siraj is supported by the National Science Foundation through a graduate research fellowship. Siraj is also being co-mentored by Dr. Fei Wang and Dr. Himan Hajira Soleha. In my free time, or in his free time, excuse me, not mine, I, he enjoys hiking and reading books about contemporary philosophy. So thank you, Siraj, again for being here. I am so ecstatic for um, this conversation and to learn more about what drives you as a person. Um, currently, our first question to our guests is always a little bit about your background, your personal history, um, and what introduced you to STEM. Yeah, so I think I got interested in this field probably in my senior year of high school. Uh, I took a computer science class in my senior year of high school uh, and there wasn't too much of a biology focus then, but uh, there was a lot of sort of applications that, um, not necessarily programming wise, but there was a lot of like applications that we read about in biology um, that sort of interested me in applying computer science to biology. So when I joined um, or when I started undergrad, I uh, looked for opportunities to do uh, research, computational research in the biology field. And by doing, by pursuing those sort of research experiences, I think I basically solidified my interest in it um, rather than sort of looking at a different direction, luckily. Um, so that's sort of what put me in this path and led me to where I am right now. So tell us a little bit about growing up even before high school and what, what were your interests then? Were you, were you always sort of a, a computer geek for lack of a better word, or did you like biology and you wanted to learn more? Tell us a little bit more about that. I think there's a bit of a balance. Um, sort of when I grew up, I knew I wanted to do something um, in the STEM field. Uh, there's sort of a, a I mean, there's sort of a somewhat of a stereotype, although, you know, there is some truth to it that, you know, a lot of Asian and Indian families, they tend to push their students towards sort of STEM fields and things. But I think there's a general sort of, uh, at least I did, had a general sort of uh, liking towards STEM too. I found that I did better at STEM than, um, you know, reading or things like that. Um, so there's a general sort of interest for myself towards those fields. I think at some point I did think it would be cool to be like a lawyer or something, but uh, decided against that. Um, but yeah, I think 
pretty early on, I wanted to do something in the STEM field. Maybe not necessarily programming. I did do a lot of math-related stuff. But at some point, I realized, some point in high school, I realized doing like a math-related career isn't the most uh, money-generating, I think, unless you go really forward and like you're really a genius. But I found that the best balance for what my interests are and also something that would give me sort of a stable lifestyle where I have enough money to live comfortably, that would be something in the computer science field with like a tinge of biology in it. So based off of that, then what drives you as a person? Yeah, so I think that's evolved over um, the last couple of years. I think currently uh, I would say that my biggest motivation is to be in a position, a research position that would enable me to have a direct impact on people that I can visualize. So one reason why I didn't go directly into, you know, industry or, you know, sort of a job outside of undergrad was a lot of my friends who did um, in years above me, they would sort of point out that they, while they worked at these like big companies like Facebook or Amazon or something, or Meta, I guess, uh, they, they would do work on these projects, which could be interesting, could not be interesting, but they wouldn't really see the end impact of their job um they get get they get paid fine money like i think some of them earn like three hundred thousand dollars a year and stuff but like uh i kind of felt that you know there's a certain point at which you want to feel satisfied with your work and i think at least for me to be satisfied i i'd like to see that the work meant something in the end rather than you know working on like a feature for microsoft for my excel and then seeing it 10 years down the line uh, when you're not working for Microsoft anymore. So I felt that the best way I could do that is to pursue a PhD, do research so I can at least like, you know, theoretically push the field forward. And then once I join, um, you know, a company, which is hopefully my plan, I'll be at a position where I would be able to more um, directly impact the research uh, goals and uh, interests of that company. I like how you tied it to um, finding and watching the actual result of of the research. I think that's something that I have personally struggled with um, in theoretical research was that I was never able to actually tie it to, you know, impacting um, the quality of life or the the livelihood um, for that example. But I think the other the other piece to you is that as I you know reflected on your bio is to juxtapose your position versus that of a clinical doctor, as an example, they can impact a patient's life. You though, however, have access to many patients and at the point of of looking at a large patient population, you you have the result potential or the potential result of impacting many lives. Yeah, I would say um, just being completely honest, I would say, though, that in my perspective, the impact that one doctor has, if you were to um, 
at least in terms of like an emotional impact. The impact that one doctor has, while it doesn't reach potentially as much impact that, you know, a, like a researcher might have in the long term, I think that the satisfaction you feel from being a doctor or being a physician or some sort is probably higher than being a researcher. But for me personally, I think that first off, I don't think I'm necessarily qualified or like not qualified would be the word, but like uh, I don't think I necessarily have the uh, sort of a hood spot it takes to go through medical school and everything. But um, I think I could do better in a computational field because it suits my interests and skills more. Um, but I will agree with you. I think the fact that I'm in a sort of clinical field, especially one at Wild Cornell where there's a big focus on translational science, um, you know, making sure that even if we're developing some sort of method or algorithm, we have to show its efficacy in um, some sort of patient healthcare setting and hopefully in real time build some sort of software that clinicians can use. Um, that sort of forces you to like really think about the impact and justify you know, why are you creating this if there's no impact? Um, so I think that's been really helpful for at least serving that purpose. No, that's fantastic. And that's, that's exactly right. I've worked with a couple of physician bioinformaticians and um, to get that perspective, they bring the perspective of the patient, um, which is yeah. very, very, very powerful. Um, so let's let's actually jump directly in then to your research. Um, and can you give us a little bit of an overview? I think we talked a little bit about your bio, um, all the different varieties of, of research that you do do. But if you could, you know, give a voiceover um, to an overall picture, that would be great. Yeah. So I often struggle with giving like an elevator pitch of my research because I do a lot of different but not really connected things and it's more the reason why I decided to go that path was because I want to sort of while PhD is for specializing um, I did want to sort of have multiple different experiences and projects which should enable me to develop certain skills I'd want to use in industry um, if I were to give an overview I think the main projects that I currently focus on uh, the first one being um, sort of computer vision tasks or, you know, um, yeah, computer vision tasks surrounding um, embryos and uh, in vitro fertilization. So to just give a brief on that, in vitro fertilization is a procedure that a lot of mothers go through, uh, families go through, if they cannot conceive a uh, child through natural means. And one part of that process is the process of embryo development. Um, there's a sort of, a, let's say five day stage where the embryo is grown and the embryologists observe this embryo's growth and figure out whether this embryo is worth implanting into the mother or if it should be, you know, uh, kept aside because it doesn't have the necessary um, attributes necessary to, you know, lead to a successful pregnancy. And selecting this embryo is quite difficult. Uh, it, there's a lot of parameters that are involved with it. Uh, even clinicians who spend you know, days looking at this cannot make the right decision. There's like a 40% chance that it, it's done right even by the best embryologists. So recently there has been research into whether you can use artificial intelligence 
in multiple different aspects of this embryo development to better select an embryo. And in our lab, my focus is looking at the time-lapse imaging. So as these, this embryo is growing, taking images of this embryo and using these pictures to as part of a sort of machine learning task to predict whether the embryo is, has, is good quality, will have uh, any chromosomal abnormalities, et cetera, and figuring out, you know, okay, this embryo did, looks good. We should prioritize it for implantation into the mother. Um, so that's that sort of project. The other big project that I do, this is in Iman Hajrosalaya's lab. Um, the other uh, project I do in Dr. Hajrosalaya's lab is a project in uh, deep learning and structural variant detection. So structural variants um, are sort of large scale genomic alterations that happen within, you know, people along their lifetime, or it could even be, you know, when you're born, these are germline variants. But the basic idea is you could have, for example, a deletion where part of your entire genome is removed by some sort of circumstance. And now uh, that could lead to certain downstream effects in terms of phenotype. So a lot of current ways of detecting this use specific rules and those rules may not always be the best at being able to detect these variants. So this is where we can potentially use some sort of deep learning architecture to learn patterns within the data, given we give this model enough data to learn, that we, it, the model itself can learn, hey, this pattern looks like it could be associated with the, a deletion type variant. So now we call it deletion here. And then the last sort of group of projects or main project that I work on with Dr. Fei Wong is in the field of clinical trial emulation. And the basic idea of clinical trial emulation is to uh, mimic a randomized controlled trial. In a randomized controlled trial, like the name suggests, right, you have some sort of randomization that allows you to say, hey, this is the treated, this is the untreated population. And uh, we're able to measure some sort of effect between these treated and untreated populations because of this randomization. Um, we have to do some level of, uh, you know, accounting for some sort of confounding, but generally because it's randomized, we're able to measure a pretty good effect that, you know, can be, can be used to give FDA approval for some, some drug or something but that's expensive. Um, so one thing we're thinking of uh, that's been in the field for quite a while is using real world data or data from electronic health records and things like that. Um, but the problem with that is there's a lot of confounding factors um, because we didn't randomize these people. We're just taking them retrospectively. Um, so that's this idea of clinical trial emulations, figuring out like, a specific trial you want to emulate, uh, controlling the biases, and then running that trial and getting a effect for whatever sort of uh, treatment you want to test. So those are the broad strokes of the different projects. That's so fascinating. And I have um, tons of questions about each of them, respectively, um, as you can well imagine. Um, for the uh, video classification of embryos, uh, embryos and their ploidy status. Um, 
What are the sort of metrics that you're actually using to quantify changes in the embryo? Um, or is it visualization that you're capturing? I'm just curious if you could just explore it a little bit more. Yeah, so there are a couple of things. So it depends on exactly what you want to capture. So let's say one thing you want to capture is quality of the embryo, um, the quality of the blastocyst, which is like the last stage of the embryo. The sort of main aspects visually that would indicate a good embryo is uh, good cavitation. So that's like a larger space um, between uh, sort of the inner cell mass and the trophectoderm, which are different parts of the embryo. Um, get, if there's large cavitation, then that's usually a sign of a successful blastocyst um, and a good uh, blastocyst score, which is the quality metric that embryologists use. Um, that you can potentially just do with an image, right? What we're thinking, right, is if we have the entire video, so multiple frames of this time-lapse imaging, there could be additional information. There could be temporal information. And one thing we found was that um, the rate, which is also reflected in literature um, in the clinical sort of side of things, but the rate at which how fast an embryo blastulates, so it goes from this sort of wound up sort of uh, cell blob to like this uh, blastocyst stage, how much time it takes to get there. That's also pretty important for determining the quality of the embryo, as well as, you know, if it has any chromosomal abnormalities. So having this uh, video sequence allows us to sort of measure this temporal rate and see, is it going fast? Is it going slow? Um, this isn't really, this isn't something we're looking into, but um, some startups actually have looked into this, but the rate of blastulation, so how fast it goes, could also be an indicator of what gender uh, the embryo could lead to. Um, there, I don't know how strong that evidence is. It's, it's something that came out recently, but um, it could be indicative of multiple things. Um, with a lot of data, not just embryos, but like also genomics and everything else, uh, the data is very dirty. And uh, at some point there's only, um, you can only get as much from the data as the data gives you. So like, uh, for example, what I personally think, and uh, this is just based on what I've read, is that while some people may say they can get gender out of a blastocyst um, or like the time-lapse images, I personally don't think with the resolution of images that we have, because they don't go like that deep where you can see the nucleus and everything of each individual cell, I personally don't think that um, you would be able to get that fine grain of sort of decision-making of, yes, it's a male versus a female. I can be proved wrong, but like, I just don't think with the technology, the data that we currently have will enable us to do that. But um, yeah, as far as your question, there are those certain specific qualities that could enable us to predict, hey, this is a good blastocyst. This could be chromosomally normal, et cetera. So with the use case then, after you've done this analysis and you, you have proved uh, the model to be accurate to essentially have a probability analysis, right? Um, what what would be the use case then? And, and every IVF 
situation you would idealize um, of going through this video capture and then to actually choose the most optimal embryo for, for a family? Yeah, so generally the, uh, the pipeline is most clinics at this point, uh, both domestically in the United States and um, overseas, they have some sort of time-lapse technology. Um, so they already do measure, usually have an image of an embryo every 20 to 30 minutes. So they already have this technology which takes these images. What our software, which we built a software off of this, what this would allow embryologists would, to do is upload specific sequence of images that we've detailed. And the software would take in those images and provide um, quality metrics and our predictions for whether the embryo is going to be chromosomally normal or not to the embryologist. And they can do this for every embryo and then use that to make decisions on, hey, the scores for this embryo based on our algorithm um, look better than this embryo. We can choose to move both, but if you had to prioritize one, let's prioritize uh, the one with the better scores, right? And the idea is that this would be a better or more cost-effective alternative, at least, compared to a lot of the more, uh, the ones that are being sort of, uh, the technologies that are being used right now for selection. One of the technologies is something called PGTA. I think it stands for pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidy. They basically take a biopsy of the embryo, which is considered uh, unethical in a lot of countries, actually. So that's another thing. Um, they take a biopsy and then they basically do next generation sequencing to see what it's uh, if it has any issues. Um, and uh, that's very costly. <laughs> a lot of people probably can't afford that. So um, having like an AI algorithm give you somewhat of a decent, accurate like prediction, that could be way more beneficial than um, at least prioritizing, obviously not replacing this technology, but at least prioritizing which embryos to at least put towards this technology. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. Um, it is, I think, really fabulous, particularly to embry embryologists um, and their time efficiency and their efficiencies in the, yeah. the lab. Um, okay, so to sh switch um, to the clinical trial emulation, I'm really interested about that. Um, what are your RCTs? Are they pharma dependent? Are they, what, what are you looking at right now? Yeah, so one thing we're interested in right now is uh, so the, there was a paper that came out of our lab, um, Dr. Fei Wang's lab from a postdoc, where he looked into different sepsis subtypes. Sepsis, it, sepsis is a sort of um, disease that you often find in the ICU. Um, it's associated with organ dysfunction, um, and it's quite hard to uh, treat uh, the the main sort of treatment for it right now is just steroids. Um, but the uh, sort of idea of using steroids for it has been sort of questioned. Um, there's been a lot of actual clinical trials that have looked at the efficacy of steroids. And they're all very contradictory, if anything. If you look at meta-analyses of these RCTs, they're all over the place. Um, but more or less, the summary that you get from these RCTs is that 
you don't know. Like it, the, the effect could be one way or another. It could be beneficial, it could be harmful. Um, but what we wanted to look at was in a paper previously published by our lab, uh, the postdoc found specific subtypes of sepsis that had specific characteristics. So one was associated with a more improving trajectory as they, as they stand in the ICU, whereas one was uh, associated with a worsening trajectory in the ICU. And there were specific sort of characteristics when it came to lab tests, vital signs for these two different populations of sepsis patients. So what we wanted to see was, does steroid application, steroid treatment, uh, affect these different populations uh, differently? Uh, so is there benefit for one specific population, whereas there's no benefit for another population? And what we found was that there is some sort of differential effect between the one subtype versus the other, um, which we believe down the line, right, given that we can um, reproduce or someone at least can reproduce this um, uh, in multiple different um, clinics, first off, at least via sort of clinical trial emulation again, but also, you know, maybe a couple years down the line in an actual clinical trial um, with these subtypes, uh, that this would be a better guideline for choosing which patients should be treated with steroids rather than what's being used right now, where some patients might be getting harmed by steroids. One of the, the uh, challenges with RCTs in particular is getting a population size that is representative. And especially here in the United States, there's a wide range of different ethnicities, backgrounds. Um, how do you even comply with social, uh, social determinants of health, socioeconomic status? Um, how does that play into an RCT? Can you talk a little bit about how you're taking that into account? Yeah. So the main sort of um, way to take that into account, um, well, there's two things, right? The first thing is the, not just like in terms of, uh, this is of course due diligence, but even in order to like publish well um, these days, you need to be able to show that your method is applicable, not just in your home clinic. So that for us, that would be Wild Cornell but also in multiple other clinics across the nation or even abroad. Um, so in that vein of things for our study, we have two cohorts, um, one from Wild Cornell and one from our um, collaborators at uh, NYU and New York University. And then we also have collaborators at University of Florida that have a similar ICU data set that we've um, replicated these results in. And then finally, we are trying to replicate these results in a cohort from Amsterdam. So this is, you know, not even America, you know, so if we're, the idea is that hopefully that if we're able to show that these results are replicable in multiple populations, um, you know, not just domestically, but also internationally, that this sort of method of, you know, diversifying patients is applicable to broad populations. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is it's important um, to note it as a limitation, right? There are often times when at the end of the day, 
not necessarily for clinical trials, but let's say you develop a model, there could be like instances where that model, it doesn't make sense to generalize it to like everything, right? It might be something where you only want it to work for, you know, New York and like be clinic specific or something. In those cases, you need to outline why that's the case um, and also outline its specific use case, right? Don't be, I guess, ambitious about what it can do. Um, and I think as long as you sort of outline what it's used for and only use it for those cases, I think it's still some an impactful tool because you're still helping somebody. What What is the ultimate... Um... Would you want potentially your models to then be used by the FDA? Is that maybe the, the future path? So in terms of these like clinical trial emulation stuff, um, the FDA, I don't think is anywhere close to like recognizing these emulations as anything close to like uh, good for approving drugs or treatments or anything. Um, I think the sort of, path for clinical trial emulation, not just for the sepsis stuff, but it just in general. Let's say you're just using, you have a drug, um, drug A. Actually, this is a study that we, um, that my lab published a couple, one or two years ago. But let's say there's a bunch of drugs that may be useful for Alzheimer's disease. Um, the list of 200 drugs, let's say. Um, and if you want to conduct a clinical trial for each of these 200 drugs, that would be extremely costly, um, infeasible. But you could do relatively fast a set of 200 clinical trial emulations and figure out which ones to prioritize. And then you only need to run the clinical trials for those ones. Um, so while it doesn't necessarily pass the FDA sniff test, um, pharma companies um, can use it to say, hey, let's prioritize this drug. Uh, in Fei Wong's lab, we have partnerships with uh, a lot of pharma companies in Boston where, um, you know, they're looking to do that stuff. And, you know, there's, I'm, I'm sure not just collaborating with us, but there's been a lot of papers um, out from Stanford and Harvard where they've shown that, you know, hey, there's this drug that we tried through observational data and, we went out and tested with an actual clinical trial. Um, and this is a 10 year long process, obviously, um, because it takes time to do an actual clinical trial. But they've shown that, hey, we're able to replicate these results in a actual clinical trial. And that's what we hope to do for the sepsis stuff as well, down the line. No, it's called speed to innovation, which is, I think, really necessary right now, right? To your point. Yeah. So my last question, this has been a fabulous conversation um, of, of research. Um, so I, I thank you for that. I guess my last question would be, given all you know and given your focus right now, if you were to um, tell yourself and reflect on yourself from 10 years ago, hindsight being 2020, what kind of words of wisdom or encouragement would you give yourself? I'd say seek opportunities when you see them. I think when I was younger and i think this is pretty normal uh i would i would be amazed if it wasn't if anything um that a lot of kids like they might have something in front of them that you know could be very and it obviously is it could be very opportune for them to pursue 
given that they have the time um, and that could help them down the line. Um, and it could even like sort of um, sort of awaken their interest in that specific field. Um, I think I was presented with a lot of those opportunities, which I didn't take. Um, I was lucky enough to like still find the path I wanted uh, eventually. But um, I think that's something that is pretty important. I have a brother in high school right now and, you know, uh, he's not really interested in like the biology stuff, but he is interested in robotics. And while I'm not into the robotics field or anything, I still do sort of, if I see something in the Cornell Digest or, you know, one of my friends at, you know, another college tells me about something robotics related, I do relay it to my brother to see if there's any opportunities. Right? I think it's important to take advantage of opportunities that might come by because, um, the world is becoming a lot closer with technology. Um, five years from now, you know, I can imagine there's probably, and I don't know if this is necessarily a good thing or not, but I can imagine there could be like, you know, middle schoolers doing like PhD level research somewhere uh, with the rate that we're going at. So I like, I think with how much technology has aided us, um, if you have the time and if you have the sort of bandwidth to do it, it should be, you should take uh, advantage of the opportunities around you. That's fantastic words of wisdom, Siraj. Um, and with that, uh, I would like to thank you for participating and being our guest today and sharing a little bit, not only about yourself, but also the, our, your research, not ours, I only wish. Um, and then I appreciate all of our, our listeners for listening in. So again, always ask yourself, where does your journey stem from? Bye, everyone. <laughs>